I was thinking I'll dip my toe into the God and country just briefly, and then we'll get into um, to Colossians. So some of you are more patriotic than me. Some of you are maybe not as patriotic as I am, so we'll see if I step on everybody's toes or nobody's toes. This is, this is me um, on kind of our understanding as Christians of the relationship between God and our country. There's two ditches, like with everything we talk about, there's ditches on either side of the road. One is to think too highly of the United States, kind of this idea that the United States is God's country. This is stereotype, but maybe to paint a picture, it's kind of it's the laser show crowd, kind of that whole, I love the laser show, but you, you get the picture of what I'm talking about. If, if it, Kind of the thinking is, if it's in our interest, well then it's God's interest. That our national priorities and our national interests and what we think is best as for us as a country, well all of those things are things God endorses because we're his favorites. We're number one on the list, either because Christians founded us or we were founded on Christian ideals or because we've helped so many people through either protecting them or sending missionaries to them or being generous towards them for whatever reason we're when he looks at the list of countries we're at the top and that that's there are people who think that way and there may be some of you think that way and obviously that's you've fallen too far you're thinking too highly of our country and the problem there again it's it's commingling or kind of smashing together what is best for the United States with somehow saying, well, that's what God wants. So in the World Cup, of course he wants the USA to win. Who else would he want to win? In the Olympics, that's a small picture, but on a larger scale, you can see how that can play out and be pretty detrimental. As a church, if, if what I'm talking with the capital C, if, if what we say is, well, anything that's the best for our country, well, that's what God wants, then we've lost our prophetic voice. We have no voice in, the, in our country anymore to our government anymore. If we just assume that everything that they say is best, well, that must be what God wants for us. Then there is no role for the body of Christ. So that's one ditch. And the other ditch is just as bad, which is thinking too lowly of our country. That's kind of, we're not God's country. We're the great Satan, you know, which some Muslims believe. That's this strain of Islam, which says the United States is the great Satan. And we're the cause of all the problems in the world. And kind of the stereotype, those are kind of the politically correct people who they're not going to the laser show unless they're going to write a paper on, you know, for their Marxist class or whatever, whatever it is that they're doing in school. That's kind of the picture there. And again, you can get that stereotype as well. It's not right. The problem there, it's, it's assuming that we're the source of all of the problems in the world, either because we're greedy capitalists or because we've we're ruining the environment or because we're colonialists or for whatever reason, everything we're exporting is bad. And, and the issue there, rather than over here where we say everything we want is what God wants, over here what we're doing, we're basically, we're kind of putting our light under a bushel. We're saying there's nothing good about our country. There's nothing that the Lord has given to us that's worth giving to anyone else. We wind up apologizing for the things that God has given to us. And there it's a, it's a lack of recognition that there are standards. There are some things are better than others. Freedom is better than bondage, period. It's not because we said it, it's because he said it. And if we get to a place where we are uh, constantly apologizing for who we are, not that we've never made mistakes, but if, if that's our posture, everything we do is bad and we're the source of all the problems, then we lose the ability to give to people the good things that God has given to us. 
both of those are bad. So obviously the, the, the goal, the road, is humility, which is thinking rightly of yourself, and it's thinking rightly of our country. And that's where we want to be. We don't want to think too highly. We don't, don't want to think too lowly. We want to think rightly, which is recognizing that our country, along with every other country in the world, has been, there's, just like we individually say we all need to be doing our deals, our country needs to do its deals. God has given something to our country that we should be doing for the sake of the world. And we need, as a country, to be doing that. And as a church, with a capital C, part of our responsibility is to call our leadership back to that or forward to that, however you want to frame it. And I'm not going to, we're not going to debate what that deal is. But you can pray and you can discern and you can ask the Lord. And that needs to be our stance as a church with a capital C. It's saying this is the thing that we need to be going for. We're better for it and everybody else is better for it as well. Let's be this. Let's do this. It's not about waving a Christian flag on the Capitol. It's none of that. It's about us collectively saying there's something for, there's a reason God called us into being just like there's a reason he called Peru into being. And so the thing is for us to go after that and to call our people to that. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says this. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptized into Christ, who have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Listen to this. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to, the, to that promise. What, what Paul is saying there is there aren't, God doesn't relate to us along national boundaries anymore. He used to. There was Israel and there was everyone else. Not the case anymore. God has broken down all of those walls through Jesus. There's no more Jew and there's no more Greek. There's just people who, have, who are connected to God through Jesus and people who aren't. We're one in Christ. So to, to, to think that God relates to us as Americans, we've missed it. He doesn't. He relates to us as his sons and daughters because we have faith. In Jesus, and this is the goal, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song. You, that's Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Again, that's where we're headed. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people becoming one kingdom, one priest who rule on the earth. That's, that's it. That's how God relates to us. That's how we want to relate to him and how we want to relate to our country. Again, it's not thinking too highly. It's not thinking too lowly. It's humility, thinking rightly about our role in the world. Let's pray. We're not done. We're just going to pray. Three things when you're maybe thinking, these are things that I pray when I, I focus mostly praying for our city more than our country. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just, to me, I'm much more involved in what's going on locally. Three things I would encourage you to pray when you pray for uh, either the city or the country, the government, whatever that looks like for you. Humility, that's recognizing our need for, for God. Bible very clearly says God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So we need to pray for leaders who are humble, who acknowledge their need for God, or they're setting themselves up, and then us by extension.
to not be in a position to receive his grace, and none of us want that. Wisdom, exactly what you think. A lot of complex problems. People who love Jesus can come down on either side of how to solve some of these complex problems, much more so when you put people in the mix who have different agendas, different value systems. People need wisdom to know how to proceed. And then righteousness. Again, it's a recognition for us that we would honor God's values and God's standards. Again, it's not about taking back anything in the name of Jesus. It's a matter of recognizing righteousness is better than unrighteousness. Truth is better than falsehood. Selflessness is better than selfishness. All of those things, those are the values of the kingdom. Whether you're a Christian or not, not too many people would argue that following God's values, whether they would say that or not, they're better. So as we pray, just kind of work through those things. Humility, wisdom, and righteousness. Just kind of pray in your heart however the Lord leads you, and I'll kind of lead from up here. God, we do thank you for... um, We thank you for our country. We thank you that you've called us into existence. We thank you for the history and the heritage that we have. God, we thank you for the way that you've used our country to bless others. And God, we we recognize 100%. We've fallen short. We've blown it. We've messed up. We get it. God, my prayer, our prayer, is God that we would be who you've created us to be. God, if that's a matter of calling us back to something or calling us forward into something, whatever that looks like, God. We have a deal to do, and we want to do that. So Lord, I pray for our leadership, locally, state, nationally. God, I pray for humility. God, for men and women who would acknowledge they're not smart enough, they're not strong enough, they're not quick enough that they need you and that we need you. God, we are desperate for your grace in our city, in our state, and in our country. Apart from that, God, we're done. So we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would lead us back to a posture of humility. And even praying that, God, can make it can be scary because what's it going to take for us to acknowledge our need for you? But whatever that is, it's better than the alternative. God, we pray for wisdom, for those who are in charge. God, that you would, whether they lean on you or not, God, I pray for our sake and for the sake of the others in this country who are saddled with their decisions, that you would speak clearly to them, that you would put people around these decision makers to speak truth. God, I pray you give them eyes to see bad decisions, false decisions, error, lies, all of those things. God, we pray for wise men and women And God, we pray for righteousness, that it would be restored in our city, in our state, and in our country. God, for freedom, for love, for kindness, for service, these values of the kingdom, Lord, we pray that they would be embraced. Your way is the only way. And God, I pray that you would move people into positions of influence who are righteous. And I pray, God, that you would remove the influence of those who are unrighteous, whatever that looks like. God, if there are people who are intent, who are dedicated to pursuing an agenda other than yours, God, I pray that you would remove their power and you would remove their influence. 
God, as we're heading into an election season, I pray as a church with a capital C, you would show us how to participate, how to be involved, God, that we would take our rightful role. And God, I pray for the body of Christ, not just in Marietta, in this state and in this country, God, that we would be the body of Christ. God, that we would stand up and that we would say with one voice, this is the way, walk in it. God, that we would encourage and God, that we would correct when that's necessary as well, that we would not be tempted by power, that we would recognize our role. God, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for all the men and women that made today possible for us. God, we pray you would bless them, bless their families. And God, we pray again that we would live up to your desires for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Nobody left? I have my eyes closed. All right, Colossians 1. I'm going to see if we can work through a few of these verses this morning. Starting in verse 28, we've been working a few verses at a time through Colossians. What we're looking at now, we're in the middle of Paul is kind of establishing his credibility to be able to speak to the Colossians. He's introduced himself, he's prayed for them, he's, and now he's, he's about to address this error that we'll get to next week. But before he does, he says, this is what's true, and that's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is what's true, this is who Jesus is in relationship to everything. And then he gets into this section where he's saying, and this is how much I care about you. These guys have never met Paul. And so he's saying, I love you guys, I'm for y'all. This is how hard I've worked on your behalf. So now listen to me. This is what's true, and this is how much I love y'all. And because of those things, I want y'all to listen to what I'm saying. So this, this says, we, that's Paul and Timothy, proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his, that's Jesus' energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing. That idea of admonishing is correcting through instruction and warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present you perfect or mature, complete, not lacking anything in Christ. So that's Paul saying, this, this is what we're going for. We want to present everyone, all of us, all of y'all, mature, complete, not lacking anything in Christ. This is Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. There's a corporate dimension to this. Husbands, love your wives. Now here's a part for us. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So that's what God is about. That's what he's trying to do. That's his goal for us. We've said Romans 8.29, for God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's individually for each one of us. 
That's what God's desire is. That's what he's working towards. He's working towards conforming us into the image of Jesus. And if you get a lot of us like that, then you get Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. You get a church without blemish, pure, holy, blameless, all of those things. So there's this corporate element for sure, but it's based on an individual element, which is all of us becoming more and more like Jesus. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect, mature, complete, not lacking anything, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. First Peter, I think it's 1, 16, be holy as your Father is holy. There's this theme that runs throughout Scripture that for us, for a lot of us, is the, the bar is too high. Be like God. Be holy. Be perfect. Be conformed into his image. But we all need to recognize that's the standard here. That's the goal. That's what God is working towards. And Paul says that's what I'm working towards as well. I want to present everyone. That means all of us. Not just the super Christians. Not just the ones who really care. Not just the ones who are in graduate school. All of us. He wants to present all of us mature in Christ. James 1.4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature. That's the same word as perfect in our verse. So you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There you get the picture of what Paul is saying. Is there a sinlessness component? That's tricky. We're fallen. We don't have to sin. We're going to sin. Paul in Romans, 5, in Romans 6, 6 says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him, that's with Jesus, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The picture there is, before you become a Christian, before you're connected to Jesus, you can't help but sin. You're a slave to sin. Your will is fundamentally broken or bent towards sin. It shouldn't surprise you when people who aren't Christians act poorly. They can't help it. They don't. Their, their will has not been transformed, the power of sin in their life has not been broken, and they do not have the Holy Spirit who enables them to keep the law. So if, you, if your will is broken, if you are living under bondage to sin and you do not have the Holy Spirit who enables you to keep the law, what do you, why are we surprised? So that's pre-Jesus. And what Paul is saying is post-Jesus, after you have a, come into a relationship with him, he sets us free from the law of sin and death. He, he, he delivers us from the dominion of darkness. We looked at this earlier, and I think it's Colossians 1.12, and translates us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. We no longer have to live under this evil taskmaster anymore. We can live here where Jesus rules. Now, does that mean we'll never sin again? I haven't met that person yet. I don't want to say I haven't. We don't have to sin, but we're going to because we're fallen and we're weak, and there's a difference there. There's, this, there's no fatalism involved. For some of you, there are sinful issues in your life, and you think, I don't have any choice. I have to sin. I can't not do it. It's addictive. And you've tried 17 different techniques to not sin, and you've failed 17 times. And so you've just decided, this is my lot in life. You might have even said, this is the thorn in my flesh. Sin is not the thorn in your flesh. God very clearly says you're not a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to live that way. I don't have to live that way. We can be delivered from all of those sinful habits, all of those sinful behaviors, all of those sinful thought patterns. And remember, sin, it's not just the, the deeds that we commit. It's missing the mark. For some of us, it's all here. It's all in our head. It's how we see ourselves. 
to how we relate to other people has nothing to do with the behaviors that we commit and everything to do with the thoughts that we say. You don't have to live under bondage to that either. He wants to present us mature, complete, not lacking anything. So yes, there's an element of this that has to do with growing. You should sin less next year than this year. Absolutely. We should be growing in Christ-likeness, which is more righteous, less sinful in terms of our behaviors and our thoughts. But I don't want you to beat yourself up when you mess up, like, well, I've blown it, or I'm not really a Christian, or this is the best that there is. That's not true. It's a process for us of growing into the image of Jesus. And you should be able to look. Some of you have been Christians for three years or five years or ten years. There should be progress in your behavior and in terms of your thoughts. They, both of those things, your behavior and your thoughts, should look more like Jesus today than they did the day that you became a Christian. Anyway, second, and I think this is maybe it for more of us. What, you have that picture? So y'all played Trivia Pursuit, right? That old game? So there's the wheel and there's the wedges. And the picture for a lot of us is that Jesus is one of the wedges. And we, we fit him into the wheel. We've got our family and we've got our friends, we've got our future and we've got our finances and anything else with an F. We've got our job. We've got all these different things that fit into this wheel. And we feel like Jesus is one of them. For some of us, because we love him so much, we give him a big old wedge. He doesn't get a sixth. He gets a half or three-fourths of it. And that's because we're great Christians and we love him so much and we feel good about that. And we say things like, and you say this and I say this, so no, no guilt here, but Jesus, God's number one and then my family and then my job. And I think we've missed it when we talk like that. I don't think he's looking to be one of the wedges in the wheel. I don't think he's even looking to be the biggest wedge in the wheel. I think what he's saying is, I'm the wheel, and everything else fits in me. We looked at that a few weeks ago when we said Jesus holds all things together. He's the wheel that holds everything else together. Paul says, I want to present you perfect in Christ. Not I want to present you perfect, period but perfect in Christ. It's only as we're in Christ that we can be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So apart from him, we're going to be imperfect, immature. We're going to lack. And I think what we lack, in addition to, there's some other things you can come up with. For me, for us, what we lack is this sense of integration or wholeness, integrity in our life. We've got a bunch of wedges that are wonderful, and we're trying to hold them together however we can. We're trying to piece all of those things together. We're trying to hold the puzzle together ourselves. We've missed the in Christ part, which is saying it's not that God is the number one priority. He's, on a, he's in a it's different. He's the wheel that holds my number one priority and my number two priority and my number three priority together. He undergirds those priorities. He's not one of them in the sense that I would classify him in the same way I would classify my wife or my kids or my job. No. Completely different order here. He's God. He holds, it's, Jesus says, I hold all things together. All things are held together by him. And so for some of you, it's just flipping that switch in your mind and recognizing God doesn't want to be, I heard a guy say one time, God doesn't want to be number one on your list. He wants to be the paper that you write your list on. That's, that's the shift for us, recognizing he's the wheel. 
that holds everything together. He's not even the biggest wedge, which is great. But that's still you holding things together. As long as he's a piece of the pie, even if it's a big piece of the pie, you're still the plate. He wants to be the plate that holds everything else on it. Verse 29, to this end, this end of presenting everyone perfect in Christ, I labor, that is, I work with wearisome effort. I wear myself out working, struggling with all his energy, that's with all Jesus' energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. There's a picture there of Paul. Sometimes for us, we talked last week about our deal, and this is Paul's deal. This is his, the good works that God has created for him. You can read Acts 9, 15 and 16. You can see this is God says, this is what I want for you, Paul. And the same thing is available for all of us. This is what I created for you. These are the good works I created for you to walk in. And for some of us, we think that once we figure out what that is and start doing it, it's peaches and cream. And we looked at last week and said, no, sometimes it involves suffering, massive suffering even. First, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives this long list of how much he suffered in obedience to God. Not in disobedience, but in obedience. And some of us, we think that once we do our deal, it's going to be easy somehow. God's going to clear away all the obstacles, and the sun is going to rise, and the valleys are going to be filled in, and there's going to be birds singing in the background, and we're just going to stroll through, and we're never going to break a sweat. Most likely, that's not the case. Maybe that will be it for you. And then you can write a book and make the rest of us feel bad. But for the rest of us, that's not it. That's not it. It's, it's Paul. I'm laboring. I'm struggling. I'm working to the point of exhaustion for you to, to do my deal. It is wiping me out. I'm giving everything that I have. But notice the dynamic here. I'm struggling with what? With all his energy. And that's the difference. It's not struggling with all my own energy, although I'm giving all that I've got. I'm struggling with his energy. This is totally not honoring, but the Holy Spirit in this picture, is, it, he's food in this picture. He's gas in the tank. That's impersonal, and he's a person, but you get the, the picture that Paul is painting there. He's food, he's fuel that allows us to move forward, to struggle, to work. To do our deal. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 paints this same picture. It might be easier for you to see there. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work it out. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You see the dynamic, the human and the divine coming together. We've said before, I think it was in Genesis 38, um, when Moses or whoever wrote Genesis is kind of recapping the story of Joseph's, of Joseph's life. He says God gave him success in everything Joseph did, that the divine human dynamic. If Joseph doesn't do anything, then there's nothing for God to bring success to. So for us, we can mess this up a couple of different ways. It's our work, our labor, his energy. That's what we're looking for. Our work or labor, God's energy. That's the combo that we want to hold on to. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's doing. We can mess it up in a couple of ways. One, most common, our work plus our energy. That's what most of us do. We not only work, strive, strain, all of those things, but we're doing it with our own set of resources. We're not eating 
this again, we're not eating the Holy Spirit. We're eating us. That's the fuel that we're getting. The gas in our tank is the gas that we provide, not what is given to us from the Lord. That's, that's what we talk about by when we say we're doing things in our flesh. That means we're relying on our own resources. For us, flesh has a negative connotation, and a lot of times in the Bible it does too, but it doesn't necessarily just mean your sinful nature. It just means your human nature. So even at my best, if I'm doing it on my own, I'm doing it in my flesh. Um, we've been doing this course for five or six weeks on Wednesday night called Sway, and one of the things that we've looked at through Sway is our greatest strengths, if they're not baptized, can also be our greatest weaknesses. So for me, for instance, one of my greatest strengths, it's, it's belief. I have a core set of enduring values, which is great. That means once I get my feet set, you're not moving me. I don't care if everybody goes left. If I feel like right's the way to go, I'm going right. That's awesome when it's in the spirit, when it's his energy working through me. But when it's in my flesh, it makes me a huge jerk. I'm unwilling to admit when I'm wrong. I won't see any other perspective. I dig my heels in and I'm stubborn. That's in my flesh. That's my work plus my energy. You see that. Another one of mine is responsibility, which means when I commit to something, or something is given to me, I commit to it psychologically and emotionally. I own it, which in the spirit is awesome. You give me something, I'm going to do it. You want to hire me to work in your office. Because when you give me something, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well in the spirit. But in the flesh, what that looks like is I micromanage, and I can, can be controlling, and I can feel like every, I'm, the, I'm the wheel holding all these wedges together. That, that's not just my work, but then that's my energy as well. And the same thing is true for you. You know yourself. That the areas where you're most likely to fall into this, your work plus your energy are your strengths. You know your weaknesses and you avoid those situations that require you to work in your areas of weakness. You run to the areas that allow you to work in your areas of strength. Those are the tasks that you embrace. And that's where the biggest danger is. Because if you're not careful, you're not just going to bring your work to the table you're also going to bring your energy to the table, which means no matter what is produced, you get an A, you get 100, you get written up in the paper, it's still in your flesh, which means it's still going to burn, and it doesn't bring glory to God. Second way we mess up, no labor in God's energy, and that's just lazy. Some of us sit around, we spend a lot of time kind of in the presence of God. We're praying and we're worshiping, we're asking God to fill us and to anoint us and to gift us and to grace us and it's all those things. But we never do anything. We're expecting him to go out and zap a bunch of people or make a bunch of things happen on our behalf or whatever. But we're unwilling to actually roll up our sleeves and get involved. We're not willing to take a risk. We're not willing to fail. We're definitely not willing to sweat. God will do it. God will, the Bible says he'll level every mountain and he'll fill in every valley. Absolutely he will, but you still got to walk. We want to, you know, we want to be the guy and, you know, maybe I'll sit in a wheelchair and he can push me down the road. You got to work at some point. And for some of us, not many of you, but for some of you, that's, a, that's an area where you fall. And mostly it's due to fear because you're afraid of failing. For some of you, it's because you're afraid of being disobedient. But for many, it's because you're afraid of failing. And so rather than actually take a risk where you might not succeed, you just sit back 
and kind of in faith that looks really spiritual is to say God will make it all happen. And I'm here to say, God gave Joseph success in everything Joseph did. So don't start looking for success if you're not willing to do anything. At some point, we've got to engage with the Lord. That's what faith looks like. 2-2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Why? In order that they may know the mystery. When we talked about mystery last week, that's a something that, that God reveals. He's kept hidden, and then he reveals at just the right time. In order that they may know the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Namely, Christ. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This will make more sense in a few weeks when we look at the error that the Colossians were buying into. But basically... Um, the, the thumbnail is there's, it, it's, uh, it's called Gnosticism. It's this idea that there's this special knowledge that only a few um, initiates can receive. And that special knowledge is what brings salvation. It's what brings life. You've got to know the right stuff. In order to know the right stuff, you've got to jump through these hoops. And what Paul is saying is, no, in Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge have been revealed. There are no secrets. There is no special knowledge that only the really smart people or the whoever gets. You don't have to join a club. You don't have to learn the secret handshake. You don't have to do any of that stuff. It's all been made known in Jesus. He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And we've talked before, in the Bible, wisdom and knowledge are both very practical. They have to do with how you live life. Wisdom has the idea of practical insight, practical application of the truth. And knowledge is always relational and it's experiential. It's not theoretical. It's not being able to pass the Bible competency exam. It's being able to live in a way that brings honor to Jesus. You can look back at Colossians 1, 9 through 11, and see the picture of what, in that prayer, what Paul is praying is for them to live with wisdom and with knowledge. We've already hit that, so I'm going to move on. 2-4. I tell you all of this. Why? Why am I telling you this, that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. Why am I telling you what I'm laboring for? Why am I telling you that I want to present you perfect in Christ? I'm telling you all of this stuff. Why? So that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. We've looked at this before as well. This idea as we push towards the end of history, whenever that is, it's closer today than it was yesterday, it's closer tomorrow than today, the 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 deception will increase. The number of people who are deceived will increase and the uh, sophistication or the power of the deception will increase as well. And so we need to be alert and we have two ways of protecting ourselves. One is the word. It's knowing this. And again, not just knowing it in a theoretical way, but actually living it out. That's James talks about not just, not just hearing the word, but doing it. If you don't do it, you lose it. Jesus says that. So there has to be this sense of walking out the truth that we know. Colossians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 2.11 says in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So it's the Word in conjunction with the Spirit. Reading the Word in light of the Spirit. The one who knows why this stuff was written and what God was trying to convey when he did it. We'll get to this verse at some point, maybe like in four months. Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
with gratitude in your hearts to God, you see both of these protections, both the word and the body of Christ. Those are your two protections. And you see them held together in Colossians 3.16. Know the word as you teach one another and admonish one another. Remember, that's correct. So for us, it's not just knowing the word. It's also having people in our life, we say it all the time, who love us and who love God who are speaking into our life. If you don't have that, you're prone to deception. It's the lettuce in the teeth thing. There are people who can see things about you that you cannot see about yourself. Period. Dot the end. It doesn't matter how much time you spend navel-gazing or taking self-assessments and personal inventories. Great. Do it. Get to know yourself. But the way God has created us corporately is we need one another. You need someone else to be a mirror, to be able to look at you and say, man, you're awesome, but when you do this, it comes across like this. You never are going to know how you come across because you never are coming across to yourself. You're always coming across to somebody else. You know that. So you need somebody to tell you. This is what that feels like when you say that, when you act that way. This is what I'm hearing and this is what I'm seeing. And you're going to say, I had no idea. That's why you need people who love you and love God. You don't need critics. You need brothers and sisters who you know when they're telling you the truth, they're not trying to tear you down. They're trying to build you up. If you don't have it, you're done. You will be the most easily deceived because people will say, the Bible says, Timothy says, towards the, or Paul says to Timothy towards the end, People will, they're going to throw away sound doctrine. They're going to look for folks who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And if you don't have true friends, brothers and sisters, who will look you in the eye and say, man, that's, you're missing it there. You might not be meaning to miss it, but you've missed it. Then all you're going to do is surround yourself with people who are going to tell you what your itching ears want to hear. And you'll become a monster. You're going to be led astray. You're easy pickings. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The idea behind that word orderly and firm, it's a corporate element. There's are military words that are talking about holding formation, which ties back to what we said at the beginning. Present everyone, that's us individually but collectively, perfect in Christ. And what Paul is saying is all of this is necessary that you'll be orderly, you'll stick together, firm. There won't be weaknesses on your flank. That's what we're going for as a church. Let's pray.